welcome back to episode three of Today in Education. Today we'll be looking into one of our GSIs, graduate student instructors, here at UC Berkeley. He actually was an instructor for an ethnic studies course here at UC Berkeley, and today we'll be asking him questions on ethnic studies and how he thinks we should implement it to lower grade levels. Thanks for tuning in. So I can start off by introducing myself. Um, my name is Daisy Ramsey. I don't know if you remember, but I was in your ethnic studies discussion. I, last. I do. Yes. It's good yeah, to see you again. Spring, I think. Yeah. Nice to see mm -hmm. you again. Um, so yeah, my name is Daisy. I use she, a pronouns. I'm a fourth year studying comparative literature and comparative ethnic studies with an education minor. And yeah. Um, my name is Diana Cervantes. I use she, her, hers pronouns. I'm a sociology major, minoring in education and digital humanities. My name's Ramsey Boley. Um, a recent graduate from the Masters of Development practice um, at UC Berkeley. Um, my pronouns are he, him, is. Um, and as Daisy mentioned, I was a graduate student instructor while I was at UC Berkeley and taught a course in ethnic studies. Um, we just wanted to say that um, we invited you to um, be a part of our podcast because, as you've mentioned, you did teach a course in ethnic studies. Um, and Giselle and I were able to see how you um, tried to implement restorative justice practices into your teaching methods. Um, and our main goal for our research project is to see how, um, like, the benefits of using restorative justice practices within ethnic studies, whether that be through an institutionalized curriculum or not. And we decided to focus on this because um, oftentimes BIPOC or other marginalized communities um, are taking this class, these classes and there are a lot of traumas that we hold um, and even more to that, right? So we wanna make sure that with restorative justice practices um, that with, with this implementation, um, I think studies courses can be a safe experience for BIPOC who hold these traumatic experiences. So that's just a little bit of context um, yeah, so just to start off, when were you first introduced to ethnic studies and what made you want to teach it? Yeah, um, so actually I was first introduced to the term or label ethnic studies um, during my time at UC Berkeley. Um, but the concept and content of what ethnic studies covers is something that I've been introduced and interested in for a while. I just refer to it as um, decolonization or um, anti-racism and things. So I wasn't familiar with the language and the actual field of ethnic studies um, until about two years ago. Um, and then I was like, oh, that, that sounds like that captures just about what I've been interested in. Um, and so I took my first course in ethnic studies actually at UC Berkeley as well. Um, I was really happy when I got an opportunity to teach in that field. Um. What made you um, focus on like the restorative justice aspect? When did that get introduced into your ethnic studies journey? Yeah, um, so actually my background is in conflict resolution. Um, so that's what I did my undergraduate studies in. Um, and so through the program that I took exposed me to um, what they called as root causes of conflict. Um, and that's really kind of what allowed me to understand 
um, the role of colonization and the need for decolonization. Um, so that's where things, that concept is where things really clicked for me in the sense that um, we really need to kind of address um, the systems and cultures and things. And we have to go way back to really understand what is at the root of the ongoing, the ongoing conflicts. Um, and so I guess that approach, um, that's what, well, that's what put me on that path. And then that's what then led me eventually to being exposed to the language of ethnic studies. Okay, um, so that kind of spoke on the next question. We were gonna ask, um, what does ethnic studies have to do with restorative justice or how do um, both of them coexist? If you have anything more to add. Yeah. Um, so I actually think that they're both very similar in the sense that they both present alternative frameworks and alternative ways of thinking and looking at um, the main systems that they're both addressing. Uh, so for example, restorative justice is an alternative to um, the current justice system or an alternative to punitive justice views. Um, and ethnic studies is also kind of an alternative view to just what modern um, white-centered studies are. Um, it's pushing people to have a critical lens and to reassess how that knowledge was produced. Um, so in that sense, they're both parallel and very similar. And I think that they also are interconnected in that sense, but they also kind of each address um, their own fields, such as restorative justice uh, being through the lens of justice, focusing on the needs of individuals who have been on the receiving end of harm. Um, and ethnic studies, from my experience and understanding currently, um, is much more education oriented. Um, but I think that also the way our education system operates is flawed in many ways. And so it should really include more consideration for kind of like the emotional needs of students in terms of learning. Um, and in the modern context, like you guys mentioned, there's a lot of harm and trauma that's happened through people's lived experiences. And so coming to school or going to any space where those things are gonna be discussed, there needs to be consideration for um, triggering or causing more harm and things and have systems in place and having the intention of being prepared to address those things. Um, how have you seen um, ethnic studies affect students and what are, what are the benefits? Um, what are the benefits of implementing restorative justice into the curriculum and how do you implement restorative justice um, practices into your teaching? Yeah, um, so I think I can first speak about my experience as a student in restorative justice and ethnic studies and how that benefited me. Um, I think one of the most powerful impacts it had was giving me language for experiences that I had had and I did not quite know how to qualify them. Being, um, being of a minority identity, um, and I moved to the U.S. when I was 14 um, from Burkina Faso in West Africa and was just immediately exposed to um, discrimination, racist behavior, being pushed aside, being treated as not as competent and all those things. Um, and so for the majority of my life, 
adult life until actually a couple of years ago when I dove into this. Those were all experiences that I had internalized without being given a framework to make sense of them, right? And not only that, being given a framework that allows me to understand that I was actually being harmed and that I needed, I have needs for healing and all that. Um, and that's just, that's a very empowering um, thing for me. Um, and so uh, maybe Daisy could speak about her experience as a student um, in my class, but I think it's the same thing for um, students in ethnic studies as well. I think it's a very powerful thing to be given language to qualify your experience. Um, and not just that, it's also incredibly empowering to be um, to have role models and mentors and educators that can speak to your experience and that you can relate to, whether it's just by um, what their identities are across um, racial lines, gendered lines, sexual orientation, ethnicity. Um, that's one thing that can help. Um, but also just, yeah, when someone who you look up to can speak your experiences and help you understand them, especially experiences that have been harmful to you. Um, I think that can be a very empowering thing. What was the second part of your question? Sorry. Yeah, how do you implement restorative justice practices into your teaching? And can you give an example? Yeah, um, so I was actually really happy that Daisy mentioned that I implemented restorative justice in my teaching because yeah, it made me happy. It means that it was remembered or somehow effective. Um, so the way, the way I did that was by trying to create a sense of community in the classroom and trying to create a culture where people felt comfortable uh, being themselves, being challenged, being wrong, and expressing what they needed to. Um, and so how a couple ways I went about trying to do that was I structured my discussions in a circle. Um, so a circle is kind of a standard um, layout for restorative justice circles um, because it kind of evens the power dynamics in the sense that everyone is seen equally. Whereas in a traditional classroom, you'll have students in the front row and students in the back row. And that, that makes it, that can create power dynamics and it also makes it harder for people in the back necessarily to want to engage. Um, and then everyone's voice is heard equally as well in the circle. And then there's a level of accountability that's held because everyone's facing each other. Um, so it makes it less likely that students might take out their phones because they know everyone is um, watching them. Um, and so another thing I did was on our first class, we came up with community agreements for the classroom um, where the students themselves kind of generated a list of agreements and conditions um, that they wanted to go by for the discussions that we'll have. So it was kind of like um, set the intention that we'll have discussions um, related to race, gender, colonialism that might be very difficult and uncomfortable for some, um, but how can we collectively make this space um, more comfortable for everyone to share in that context? Um, and so that's important to one, kind of try to start setting um, creating a space where people feel comfortable, but also giving students a sense of ownership in their own space, um, because really the space is here for them to learn and for them to engage with these concepts. Um, and the traditional, again, traditional classroom settings have clear power dynamics between an instructor and a teacher and a student body. And so for me with restorative, the restorative justice concept here is trying to kind of like 
get rid of that power differential as much as possible. Um, so again, with that circle structure and the community agreements, um, which gives students ownership and authority in the space. Um, and then before every class, I would um, just write the community agreements on the board to remind everyone of what they were. Um, and I just start classes with like a quick check-in, you know, not to jump immediately into the formal curriculum and stuff, um, just to create kind of a space, a normal space for humans to connect in a sense. Um, so those are small things that I tried to do within the very limited 50 minutes um, class time that we had once a week. Yeah, I'd like to add something if that's okay. And then hopefully you could like kind of give a response to that or maybe. Um, so I remember, yeah, for the community agreements, um, or for the most of the class or for all classes, you would uh, mostly like facilitate, but like you mentioned, it was like community grounded. You were trying to see, um, get us to participate to make sure that our voices were being heard. Um, and I remember for the community agreements, there was one student who, um, who said something like, oh, um, if you say something that's not okay, I'm gonna call you out or something along those lines, right? And so I think that was kind of like the phrase of like intent versus impact. Like, you know, you might say something and you might not realize that when you're saying something like it actually caused harm to someone. And then Ramsey was like, oh, like, let's try to phrase that in a more restorative justice way. Right. Because in that moment, um, I guess for me as a, another student, I was just like, yeah, like I'm all for like making a safe and in inclusive space. But like if you call out someone like, are you actually doing the work? to bring them in and then have them like reflect and see why they shouldn't do that? Or is that just gonna be an incident where the student is still gonna, can still ca cause harm in other spaces because the root of the problem wasn't addressed um, and they're just not gonna speak up because they don't wanna be called out again. Um, and another instance that I can think about is, I can't remember what it was, but you did like a string activity where you made us like um, talk about like our different identities. And I thought that was really powerful because um, you know, like, for example, like in my group, it was like three um, Latina women. And then there was this other um, male identifying um, Asian guy. And then he um, couldn't, like, he he couldn't understand what it meant to like, for women, because for us three Latinas, we put um, the gender uh, string as like our number one identity. And then he had like something else, right? And so when we were trying to explain um, why gender was the, like why gender was the one thing that we mostly identified with or like how we walk through this world and like gender is like the main thing in our heads is because as women, you know, like we face a lot of violence, a lot of harm, not just like physical, but emotional, um, all of that stuff. And even though he couldn't understand it, um, he, it did create that space for us to like have that conversation. Um, so yeah, I think that does add to like, what is it? Those are examples of how you implemented restorative justice in a pretty good way. Um, and I think another key part to that is that, you know, you as Mel identifying, um, you didn't like talking about positionality. You weren't like, yeah, this is what like women or like specific ethnic groups are going through. You just like brought it up of like, oh, like let's um talk about this that way we can like talk about our own experiences so I thought that was pretty good too those were obviously like really great examples and they're very emotional and can be somewhat triggering um but what would be your advice to other teachers and schools who are implementing ethnic studies into their curriculum and how 
how to handle these situations in a respectful manner where um, everyone sort of feels like they're in a safe space? Uh, first of all, I think um, there's no like silver bullet um, for this because um, it's very much going to depend on individual context, um, depending on the student body that's present, their individual and collective experiences, um, individual and collective exposure to um, ideas of ethnic studies already, um, as well as who are the teachers there, because um, the teachers might not have any background knowledge on this, and that can make it very difficult um, and even harmful to the teacher and the students to try to take on teaching such the subject matters. Um, and also I have to acknowledge that teachers are already incredibly overworked and underpaid. Um, and it's a lot of emotional labor to take on, to work in this space and to educate people in this space. Um, so those are just to say that I guess initially would be quite challenging. Um, but I think some of the most important things to um, consider um, from a restorative justice perspective to start would be to stay um, student-centered um, and just kind of as an educator, as a teacher, trying to get yourself in a position and a mindset where um, you're kind of stepping back from that traditional education power dynamics role where you're the expert in the room and you're pouring knowledge onto this bodies of students and they have to just absorb it, right? It has to be a much more collaborative exchange process where their lived experiences and their knowledges are just as valuable as the knowledge that you're bringing in. Um, and so being able to somehow change the power dynamics that everyone has been so conditioned to operating by in the traditional classroom, um, I think that might have to be a key priority that student, that teachers might want to look at, um, which would entail them themselves like doing some serious internal work um, and deconstructing their understanding of their role as a teacher, how they might have taught for decades or years. Um, and also, if you want to go into the ethnic studies component of it, definitely for them to do some internal work to deconstruct their own identities um, and have a better understanding of how their identities have been constructed and conditioned by various um, historical events, by the history of oppression um, in this country and the cultural dominance of um, and how their identity relates in contrast to like hegemony and all those things. Uh, so I, and that's already a lot of work to ask any individual to do. Um, but I think that would be one important first step for teachers to take on. Um, and I, I guess another thing that I found to work and in order to kind of try to uh, level the power dynamics in our discussions was to do a lot of um, small group discussions. Um, so my students would have a lot of group discussions in groups of three or four. Um, and what that does is it takes the attention away from like the instructor at the center of the room um, and just gives them more time to um, share their own stories and experiences and hear from others. Cause like it's, that's, I think most of the learning comes from each other, from each other and the peers that we have in class. Um, so 
creating a lot of time for discussion for small group discussions i found that to work so that would be something to do as well i think that ethnic studies and restorative justice should be taught at the elementary school or middle school grade level and if you do what do you think that would look like i mean i definitely think it should be taught at as early as possible when education starts um and i definitely believe that it would take different forms of what it would look like depending on the age group um, and the different levels. Um, so I think starting with restorative justice, I think that's just, in essence, it's really kind of just basic social skills um, that I think we're actually strongly lacking in this culture being so individualistic and people thinking of me first rather than a collective of a community first and thinking about how your behavior affects the larger group around you versus just you. Um, so I think that's those are like basic concepts that need to be taught from kindergarten starting. Um, just those basic like active listening, how do you actually listen with someone, empathize with someone and communicate with someone, not just like yelling what you want and how you feel um, and not listening to the other in return. Um, and then so for ethnic studies, that's, I mean, that clearly becomes a controversial topic when people are talking about whether they should be uh, mandated to teach. Um, but for me, it absolutely should because it should be taught as soon as students are exposed to um, history courses um, that are largely shaped on whiteness and white supremacy. So the first moment students are exposed to that in a curriculum sh should be where we start implementing ethnic studies material to rectify the very false and harmful narratives that those perpetuate on students. Um, and in some contexts, it might be needed even before um, students are exposed to that in the school system because those systems um, operate outside of the school context um, and affect kids from a very young age and conditions people um, years before they even step into a history classroom. Um, so now how, how to go about that is, I mean, I think there's, um, there's a lot of innovative ways that can be explored on how to go about that. I mean, I'm a big believer in just like cultural production being critical. Um, so you can have like highly regarded artists, whether it's like music, art, painting and stuff who can produce very powerful art. Um, and then that can really influence people from a young age. Um, and I know I myself have, as I reflected on this, I realized how um, influenced I've been by um, hip hop artists um, who really were educators when you look back on them. Um, so those are things to not take for granted as well and definite big avenues for shaping a culture. Um, but yeah, the terms of creating a curriculum for kids, I think an important, I think an important piece that needs to be considered is again, being student centered and having whatever the curriculum gets designed, um, it has to be the student body that will be learning that material has to be considered. You wouldn't teach the same material to a group of students who, have, who are white and have been privileged their whole life and have not been exposed to these concepts as you would to someone whose whole life experiences can relate immediately to these materials because um, they have 
different starting points and different emotional needs as well and needs for healing. Um, so I think that's where it gets tricky, but that's that's an initial thought there. So earlier you had mentioned that, um, you know, with ethnic studies, it did give you the framework, the language to talk about the, this, the different systems that are at play that are oppressing various peoples in intersectional ways. Um, and then just recently you talked about how like um, you got like inspired by a lot of like hip hop artists who like would talk about um, these type of things. For me, someone that comes to mind is Tupac Shakur. Um, yeah. And then someone who's um, done a lot of um, activist work, Angela Davis, right? Both people who mm-hmm. um, I say, I would think, or like from what I've seen um, as an undergrad student, um, they're seen as like people from the streets, not within academia, mm. right? So mm-hmm. I guess my question is, how do you think um, this can be addressed? Because there are a lot of students who go into academia who are taking these ethnic studies classes and if they're talking, if they're using street language, hood language, then they're immediately like policed or in some way like told like, oh, use academic language, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so my question is, how do you think this can be addressed with ethnic studies and restorative justice in mind? I mean, that's that's a great question. That's really tough. I think, so what I'm hearing is kind of like, how do you address um, kind of the issue of assimilation um, that's expected within um, like higher education, for example, like, yeah, which is um, a huge issue because they have been operating this way in a very long time. Um, And then we get to the question of like cultural change, um, which is really hard. I think definitely one thing that needs to happen is there has to be more diverse faculty presence. And again, you can't just have like someone with no lived experience of oppression of any kind as it relates to their identity, just step into a classroom and start teaching this material, right? Because that's then it's a lot more likely for them to um, to police the language of one of the students who might bring up like Tupac Shakur, Kendrick Lamar, um, Angela Davis and the likes of them. Um, Because these, these voices haven't been accredited in the academic setting. Um, And on one hand, unfortunately, the burden of this really falls on students themselves, um, which I I have experienced in my own master's program. Um, It's really really difficult to kind of find yourself in a position where you hear things that you know aren't right, that are like either flat out racist or microaggressions and very dismissive of your own identity and experiences. And you find yourself in this position of, of like, internally debating whether you should say something, what do you say, how do you go about it? And that takes like five, 10 minutes out of like what should have been learning time for you. Um, And I think that happens way too often that that weight falls on um, um, BIPOC students in the United States um, and even um, female identifying or queer identifying students. Um, But unfortunately we don't have set systems or protocols for addressing that. So it's kind of like an ongoing battle where students actually speaking up in class are what's gradually making a difference um, and asking for more diverse faculty, asking for more diverse curriculums um, will actually can actually lead to change because that's how ethnic studies eventually came to be at UC Berkeley was students protesting and making demands for the curriculum to reflect their own realities. Um, 
but yeah i mean that's that that needs to change the just our what we consider to be um uh quality knowledge or knowledge that is credible credible knowledge right knowledge that just comes from um white white people in a sense or white systems um, and then disqualifying the others as like street or ghetto and this and that. Um, we definitely need to kind of uh, refine, rebuild the culture and education system around um, that values the diversity and knowledge that exists. So going off of that and then the previous questions, um, do you think that ethnic studies should be some supplemental to U.S. history or should it replace American history? <laughs> um depending on what you consider U.S. history. If U.S. history is what is currently taught as U.S. history in modern curriculums, um, then I would say both in the sense that it, it has to be replaced and supplemented. And I say that because I don't, I don't know what percentage of the U.S. history that's currently taught is actually accurate, but there has to be some percentage. It's just incredibly, um, biased um, and strategically so, um, and that, that needs to be completely rewritten and wiped out. Um, so from my, I mean, yeah, I guess if I had to pick an answer, I would say um, replace for the most part, but also acknowledging that there is history that is taught that is true history. Um, but so what needs to be replaced is just, um, we need to apply a ethnic studies lens um, to how this history has been designed, which is we have to question um, the contexts um, of the people who created the knowledge. And we have to, we have to re-examine the context of their own experiences um, and see what was left out of that. Um, and if you look back, you'll see that it was all people from a specific class, from a specific race and a specific gender. Um, and so how do we, the question then becomes, um, then how do we include the positions of all the other identities that have not been included? So from that sense, I think it definitely has to completely be replaced. Um, but you also have to be careful with the language you use because um, if you approach people and you're like, oh, we have to replace this completely, then that could lead to more resistance versus we have to supplement it. So then that becomes a different debate about how you actually go about enacting these changes. Um, and I mean, both both um, both arguments, people who take both routes are important for the movement regardless. Um, so I don't know if I gave a clear, clear answer there, but. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, yeah, that does answer the question. And we were just wondering about this because we feel like currently um, the question is like, should ethnic cities even be implemented? But people are not thinking like mm -hmm. beyond that step, right? They're, um, so yeah, like we're wondering like, oh, when they say implement ethnic studies, yeah, we're all for it. Um, but then what are they saying to that? Are they saying replace or are they, are they saying supplement? So that's where that question came from. Um, mm -hmm. And then moving on to our next question, what do you think um, Gavin Newsom's veto of the ethnic studies curri curriculum? Um, yeah, what do you think of that? Um, I mean, I haven't looked that much into it. I just kind of read that he vetoed the proposal for mandating ethnic studies, um, which I mean, my first impression is certainly that that sends a clear a message, regardless of what the details are behind it. Um, it sends the message to um, non-white identifying folks 
um, that kind of perpetuates the white supremacist cultural dominance um, that you know, ex non-white experiences are not as valuable and they're not valuable enough to be taught about in schools when actually the majority of students across the country in schools right now are of um, non-white racial heritage. And it also kind of says that the issue is not urgent in a sense, um, which it absolutely is and it has been. Um, so I don't know, I might have to look more at the details behind that, but my first impression is that yes, this absolutely should be, should be mandatory um, within the curriculums of public education. I guess our last question would be like, what do you hope a potential educator takes away from this interview? If you are going to educate in this space, um, you have to find a way to tap into the lived experiences and knowledges of the students participating and find ways to elevate that to the status of being experts in the field. Um, because although, I mean, no one, everyone has different lived experiences, although we're all dealing and operating under the same um, oppressive systems and cultures, um, everyone has different lived experiences and different knowledge of what it's like to do that. So it's like, I see it as kind of like different pieces, right? And the full understanding comes when those different pieces are brought together. Um, so I hope an educator would, the key message, I guess, I'd hope an educator would take would be finding ways to um, empower your students who have been disempowered in the classroom um, for them to feel like they're valued and that their knowledge is worth exploring more and building on. Um, and in that sense, uh, teachers often have to do a lot of internal work um, for their own identity, come to realizations uh, about yeah, their own biases and um, kind of reconsider the power dynamics of a traditional classroom. Um, so thank you so much. These are all the questions that we've prepared. Um, is there anything else that you would like to add or like that you would want to talk about? Um, I mean, I'm, I just appreciate that you're um, doing a podcast on this. I would love to hear um, how this, what the final project turns out to be. Um, yeah, it's great that you're investigating this work specifically in the context of education because um, it's so important for for that space that conditions so many young people for all of their young life um, to be aware of these issues and uh, counters all the harm that's done um, at those critical stages of development for youth. Because um, if we can address it there, then that can really, really change things. So thank you all for, for doing this work. Appreciate that. Well, you don't have to answer this question, but it's always been in the back of my mind, um, especially since taking ethnic studies courses here, like at the universities, like probably it was my first interaction with ethnic studies too. And um, I definitely feel some type of way whenever I have white professors teaching it. Um, but then I know it's not necessarily um, by POC's like um, obligation to in any way teach it. Mm -hmm. But it's like how how do we like mediate that? Like how do we how do we come how do we make teaching these ethnic studies courses like kind of like a safer space? Like telling like maybe by POC um, students like it's okay, but then 
also maybe teaching these professors to not have this like white savior's mindset because I think it sometimes it jumps out. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that's yeah, another complex issue. I think what comes to mind for me in that sense is that, so I guess a fundamental belief or assumption of restorative justice is that um, everyone has intrinsic value. Um, and so everyone, again, operates under these oppressive systems that has been conditioned by them. Um, so even a white person who is coming to, um, who might have a white savior complex and teaching this course, um, that would be that would be kind of like how that would currently man manifest under the current systems. Um, but I think for me, I tend to intuitively take a step back and try to see, well, this person must have some valued knowledge and experience under the system that can help us to readjust it. The question then becomes, um, what is that? And how do we bring that to the surface? And how do we best make use of that? Because it might not necessarily be standing in front of a class of BIPOC students who have completely different lived experiences and trying to teach that. But it's more so they I, maybe maybe their interest in this space comes from an internal realization they had about like their privilege and how that was constructed and harm they caused. If that's the case, then that could be a lot more valuable, maybe talking to a group of white students in a sense, or other people can relate to that experience. Um, so I think it's um, important to like build on people's intrinsic strengths and experiences and knowledges and make the most of that in these spaces. Um, and it could, I think it's very possible for a, a white person to be able to teach um, competently these courses um, is just not probably the most common situation that you'll find just due, due to their lived experiences. Yeah, thank you. I know it's a mm -hmm. question to answer, but that was yeah. I have a follow-up question. Sorry, yeah, sure. Um, Diana, I know this is something that you were um, talking about earlier where in one of your classes, and I think Anthony City's classes, you talked about um, how there's this white guilt and going back to the idea of like, you know, implementing restorative justice. How do you think that would play out in terms of like addressing white guilt, but also not making it, not shifting the space so that BIPOC then feel like, okay, I guess I can't talk about this. Or like, you know, there's just like, I guess, a shift that happens. I don't know, Diana, if you want to speak more to this. Um, yeah, so in my situation, it was more like we were talking about like um, the privilege walk where like we said a sort of um, a set of questions and then everyone takes a step forward if they have this privilege. And then um, by the end of it, this white guy got really emotional because he saw how privileged he was compared to the rest of us and in turn he felt really guilty and started crying and it got to the point where no one else got to talk about their issues it sort of just turned into like a completely like white guilt um took up a lot of space a lot of time where no one else got to sort of like pitch their side of things um yeah i mean that's that's definitely a um not an uncommon situation to happen in spaces where these conversations try to happen 
Um, and I'm trying to remember there's an author, the book White Fragility hits really well on that entire concept and experience. Um, the name of the author is escaping me. Um, but yeah, I mean, that just really replicates um, the standard power dynamics of whose voices, whose voice can be heard in this space, right? Because now you're talking about, you're in a situation where we've revealed um, different harms people have had, although it wasn't, it wasn't meant to um, focus on the harm he felt from realizing how privileged he was. Um, first of all, I would acknowledge, okay, that's a harm that he experienced. Um, but the fact that the whole conversation that followed then was centered around his needs um, is just shows you again how you can very easily fall in the traps of replicating the power dynamics of the system, right? That would keep a white male at the top and then him feeling comfortable enough even to be the center of attention um, without necessarily maybe realizing that he's doing that because he's had that platform um, maybe for his entire life. Um, so in that, in that context, I think it's important for whoever is leading and facilitating that exercise to recognize what's going on and step in and divert the conversation um, in a constructive way without necessarily like shutting them down. Um, but subtly being able to redirect the conversation towards what was initially um, intended and at the very minimum provide like an equal opportunity for everyone to have their voices and experiences heard. Well, thank you all so much for inviting me on your podcast. I'm excited. Thank you. Thank you, Ramsey. Like we couldn't have done this without you. So thanks again. <laughs>